Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, in one sense, will be talking about this morning surrendering uh, to you. Because the only way that we can ever be in your presence is by coming to you by your design, by your way. As we acknowledge really who we are in light of who you are in our complete unworthiness to be in your presence. Yet as we open our Bibles this morning, I ask that you would speak through me that it would be as if, once again, it, it's not my words, it is your words. And that you would exponentially multiply the effectiveness of the sermon. Father, do things far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, and specifically through me, as we preach the Word of God this morning. I simply ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, entitled Different, I want to begin with a brief recap as you're going to Matthew chapter 5. Two weeks ago, I did a sermon on the truth called Truth Matters, and in it, I read John 18, 37, where Jesus is speaking, and he says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I talked about a war that goes on, that actually a war that is going on right now in our world, and it's a war for the truth, that there are sides in this war. Either you're on the side of truth or you are on the side of lies. And that our actions really reflect what we believe to be really real. And I quote statistics from the latest surveys that show that really the lifestyle of believers is not different enough from the lifestyle of unbelievers. That there is an erosion of the basic biblical moral foundings in our country, and the impact is staggering. And until we Christians begin to live out what we believe to be true, i.e., we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the picture doesn't look good. We simply aren't getting it done. And so I challenge us in this whole sermon series, what you believe, do you believe that to be really true? And if so, it is only reflective then in how you live your life because we live from our hearts. I followed that up with an overview last week of just because a lot of historical political, religious background of Jesus' time, but talked about happiness, true happiness. And the happiness is God's concern for his children. You may recall that the very last words of the Old Testament from God was a curse. And literally, the last words of Malachi are a curse to the people. 
Yet the very first recorded sermon, God speaking to his people, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with blessed, which is the word for happiness. It's a radical thought that Jesus wants you to be happy, that happiness is his concern. It's not a circumstantial happiness, but it's a state of happiness that exists in God himself, exists in God the Son himself, and exists in God the Spirit himself. And he shares that with his people through his promises. We can know that state of happiness, that state of inner bliss, that blissfulness that exists in God, and that is for, and it's only for, his children. 2 Peter 1.4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The way that we access this happiness of God that's not determined by any circumstance is through his promises that he's given us. That's how we partake of God's nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's just a brief background of everything we've gone over so far because I want to begin now talking about Jesus actually beginning what is called his Galilean ministry, i.e. in Galilee. In Matthew 4, 23 through 25, Jesus launches his ministry. John the Baptist has just been imprisoned. John the Baptist was the herald. The herald announces the coming of the king. Well, he's now in prison. His ministry is over. Now it is time for the king to begin his ministry. And this is what he does. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he went to where the people were, the Jews in the synagogues. He proclaimed and taught them his message, the gospel of the kingdom. And he backed that message up with the miraculous, the demonstration of power, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Verse 24 makes a whole lot of sense. Even if that happened today, I think the same reaction would occur. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. People react how? Well, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we have this word gets out and these great crowds are following him. Now you may recall from last year we did a sermon on uh, where Jesus had large crowds following him. We're talking, you know, Tens of thousands of people, as many as 50,000 people, some scholars believe, were following Jesus. So this is a large crowd. Thousands of people are following him. It makes sense now. You go to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the verse we're looking at this morning. Matthew 5, 1 through 4. Now I want to let you know that 
I had hoped to get through the first four Beatitudes, but it simply was just not possible with the amount of time it would take. So we'll at least get through two this morning. We'll see how many we get through next week. The reason being is this. I want to explain to you accurately, and when I say accurately, I mean biblically, what the Bible says about being poor in spirit, about those who mourn, and all that it entails. So you understand what it means, so you can then understand how it impacts your life and how then you are to live your life. So, Matthew 5, 1 through 4. And what we're going to begin with is what I call begging basics. Just stay with me. You understand exactly what I'm going to say here. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, the word poor, it's actually a verb in the Greek, and it means, you watch this now, a shrinking from something or someone to cower and cringe like a beggar. A shrinking from something or someone to cower and cringe like a beggar. Now, it's the same word used in Luke 16 when it uses this word. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. So the word poor is translated beggar. In other words, this beggar was doing this. If you go, everyone can look at me, or you obviously see me online, this. Head down, hand out. They're cringing in the corner. They're cowering. They are a beggar. Now, the word commonly used for the ordinary poverty was a different Greek word. You find it in Luke 21, 2. It says this. You might remember this. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. So Jesus is watching the, the Pharisees give all these large amounts of money in front of these crowds and receiving the recognition and their reward. Then this poor widow gives two small copper coins. This poor widow had very little. Here's the point. But she did have two copper coins. See, she was poor. But she was not a beggar. So one who is poor, as Jesus is referencing here in Matthew 5, verse 3, they are so poor that they have nothing. But the widow had at least some meager resources. This is a different kind of poor. But the one who is really poor, the one who Jesus is referring to, and it's this person who is happy, they're completely dependent upon others for their existence. So you have no skill, you cannot function in society, and in many cases, the kind of poor people, the beggars that Jesus is referring to, are those who are physically sick. They're crippled, blind, deaf, and dumb. All they can do is this. Put their head down in shame and cower and put their hand up. They have absolutely no means to support themselves. Pleading for grace and mercy from somebody. So, blessed are the poor, he says. You're not poor like the widow. You're poor like a beggar. 
You are begging poor. It is that person that is blessed. And here it is. Jesus says that that kind of person is happy? (laughs) Huh? That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Now, Jesus is not talking about physical begging here, by the way. He's not talking about physical poverty, but rather a poverty of spirit, an inner begging. Now, the Old Testament put it this way in Isaiah 66, 2, but to this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So God looks upon who? The one who is humble? The beggar. When it is poor in spirit, they're contrite of spirit. They tremble at his word. Ah, when God sees that type of person, he sees, he looks. That's who he pays attention to. So it's the man who literally shakes on the inside because of his spiritual destitution. God sees that person. You know why? Because God identifies with the people who beg on the inside. Jesus put it this way in the New Testament. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, gave, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. There's a picture of a beggar again, like this. He would not lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Again, you see the image of a beggar, unwilling to look up because he's shamed. And that's the tax collector. And by the way, was the tax collector poor? If you remember any of my sermons, the tax collectors were wealthy. So it's not a matter of physical or material Poorness, no, it's, it's a, a poorness in the spirit, an inner begging. So happy are those whose spirit is destitute or whose spirit is bankrupt, and they cringe in a corner and they cry out to God for mercy. Huh? They're the happy ones because they're the only ones. They're the only ones. They're the only ones, they're the only ones who can tap into the real resource for happiness, which is God himself. Remember, through the promises of God, we tap into his nature and we experience true inner happiness, the same state of happiness, that same state of inner bliss that God knows that he exists in, it is for God's children. And this message, folks, it is the opposite of the world's message. Because the world says happy are the rich, happy are the famous, happy are the prideful, the self-reliant, the self-assured. I will never forget 
my years in campus ministry at Bowling Green State University. We were going, I was actually alone going door to door in this one dorm. And I ran across a, a gentleman who was in his room. He was older. He was 21 or 22 years old. He'd gone to the military for the first three or four years of his life. He was a freshman in a freshman dorm at 22 years old. Now, you can tell a big difference between an 18-year-old boy or man, young adult, and a 22-year-old man. And this guy, when you find these military men that occasionally come to these campuses, they're typically been kind of exposed to, to the world and to life and tend to be a little bit either completely open or completely shut to what you're talking about in regards to religious matters. Because often military people are put in harm's way, there's an openness to God. And I went in and, and got to know this, this young man, and as we were talking, I asked him questions about his spiritual background, and I asked him that if you know, he were to die tonight and appear before God, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Basically, he gave the standard answer, I've lived a pretty good life. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But he wasn't really sure if he would go to heaven when he died. So I began to share the gospel with him. And I got to the point where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father but through me. But he has a sin problem. And that sin is such a huge gap that, that you cannot bridge that gap yourself. Now, I was taught to use, one of the examples to use, to really kind of give a... a, a a picture in the mind of the average person of how big this gap is. And I would say, let's say that all you had was yourself, and you had, you're on this side of the Grand Canyon, and at its widest point, it's about a mile wide, there's the other side. And all you have is yourself, nothing else. Can you get to the other side? All you can do is run and jump as hard as you can. Can you bridge that gap? Well, obviously, what's the answer to that? No, no one can do that, right? Not to this young Marine. I'll find a way, is what he says, because we never give up. I'll find a way. You see, that was the training he got as a Marine. Never give up, we will always find a way. Basically, reason was thrown out the door. Not because he was some existential thinker, it was what had formed his thinking. I said, really? So you know what the, the, the world record is for a, a, a long jump? You're not even going to come close. I'll find a way, he said. He kept coming back at me. I'll find a way. I'll find a way. I'll find a way. And as long as you think, anybody thinks this, that you can find another way to God's kingdom, you will never know happiness. you will never know happiness. You see, there must be an emptying of self. It was St. Augustine, the, the great Christian scholar thousands of years ago, before his conversion to Christianity, he was proud of his intellect. And he said it held him back from believing. Only after he emptied himself of his pride did he ever know God. Martin Luther entered a monastery to earn his salvation through religious devotion. And he failed miserably. One day he woke up and realized he was a total failure. All those years in that monastery, and he was not able to please God. But he too, like, like St. Augustine, 
emptied himself of himself. And after his death, his friends found a scrap of paper in his pocket on which he had written in Latin and German, and I don't speak Latin or German, but the Latin phrase was this, hoc est verum, and the German phrase was, I'm going to butcher this, where sinned alle betler? Translation in Latin, hoc est verum, this is true, where sinned alle betler? We are all beggars. So this is true. We are all beggars. We are all that beggar cringing in shame with the hand up and the head down, utterly dependent upon others for their grace and for their mercy for our existence. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, Jesus finishes his thought in Matthew 5, 3 by saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word theirs, believe it or not, is a present tense verb. It's theirs, it's mine, it's ours, is the kingdom, is what it means. The point is this, this is not something, the kingdom of heaven is not something that you will experience in the future. You following me? It is for the citizen of God's kingdom now. So you can experience, and only you can experience this, only the child of God. Remember, he is speaking to believers here. This message, this whole sermon series is for believers. It is not for an unbelieving world. For you and for you alone, you can experience the kingdom of heaven. Now, there is a future element to the kingdom of, of heaven, that we will realize in its fullness when we actually part from this life and go into God's presence. But he's saying that for now, the kingdom is now for theirs. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the reign of Christ in the heart of God's children is now, which means that now, and this makes sense, you can experience the kingdom of heaven, which means you can experience true happiness if you claim his promises, if you are poor in spirit, if you understand you're a beggar. We are all beggars. We are all beggars. So true, satisfying happiness is now. And so I ask you this. Do you really believe that? This is truth. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Is this evident in your life? Now, I want to have one final thought uh, from the esteemed Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a scholar, a biblical scholar. He says this, and I have to put this in here because there's a logical flow to the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, this of necessity is the one which must come at the beginning for the good reason that there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from it. In other words, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. 
There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven and all the other characteristics, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, all of that stuff that we'll go through, they are in a sense the result of this first character trait. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where it all begins. Now, I've said this, and I'll keep saying it throughout this sermon, throughout the whole series. Remember the words of Jesus Christ, John 18, 37. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he said. What you will find, obviously, in our world is a message from the world that will counter God's truth. And it is found in every other world religion. They promise you a way to God or to heaven or to eternal life apart from humbling yourself. Every one of these world religions, the pantheistic religions, the, the, the secular humanism, uh, you know, New Age religions, Islam, Judaism, Catholicism, all of those preach a message that is based on works. You can earn eternal life through living a good life or some form of eternal life. And that is the exact opposite of Matthew 5.3. It makes sense though, doesn't it? There's going to be either you're on the side of truth or you're on the side of lies. This is lies. Only the only people in the kingdom of heaven are beggars. Those who humble themselves. Those who understand, again, they understand here, I'm utterly unworthy unable apart from your grace, apart from your mercy. And do you really believe that to be true? Now, let's go on to the next verse. We talk about what I call blessed sadness. Most of you know, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, uh, when I was at Bowling Green State University working with the church and running their campus ministry, there was some conflict that we had, and uh, one of the, the staff that was working with me uh, betrayed us and the other staff members. They had secret conversations where we were set up, and uh, they had secret meetings with the college students and just divided the ministry. There was lies and deception, and it was handled not very well by uh, the pastor of the church at the time. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed like that. That was my first time at being betrayed. And let me tell you, it was not fun. For a period of about, I would say, five, four to six months, I was in a state of depression. And I'm not a depressed person. I was, I'd lost weight. I wasn't eating that much. I couldn't sleep that well. Life just, I mean, food doesn't taste good. You just, you know, just are kind of 
it, it wears on you, and people could see it in me. When my parents came and visited, they could see it in me. They could see it in other staff members that, we were, that were betrayed. And it was just hard. I mean, life was just hard. And I remember when finally the elders took over because the pastor wasn't leading. The whole thing should have been dealt with you know, quickly and, and it was kind of a clear-cut, dry case. But we suffered needlessly the whole summer of 2004. And when the elders stepped in, they forced a meeting with this couple upon which there was no repentance in their part. And the, the elders and the pastor and myself, but really myself, were just left having to pick up the pieces of a broken ministry and move on. Now, one of the uh, elders had been in campus ministry years ago. He was a professor at Bellingham State University. He had a similar issue where he believed in, or similar conflict in his ministry where he was part of a Church of Christ ministry, if I remember correctly, and they believe in, you know, faith in Jesus Christ plus baptism to get to heaven. And he saw that that wasn't true, so he just began preaching grace alone. Well, the church that was helping support him found out, brought him into a meeting where he was surrounded by about 10 or 15 other people that had these thick notebooks, and for three hours they grilled him on his theology. Now, he had 10 supporters at the time that were giving him $50 a month. By the time he left that meeting, he had one supporter at $50 a month. So he had to leave the ministry and go back to school, eventually became a professor. So this conflict, this pain that we all can relate to it to some extent was, was common. And I remember, never forget what he said. Bruce Edwards said to me, we'll just have to walk through this pain together. Because there was never going to be any true healing because they would not admit their part in it and what they had done. And when walking through this pain, there was a verse or verses that I had read before, by the way, but they never really stuck out to me. But boy, they meant a lot to me during this time. And they took on a whole new meaning. It's 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 29. This is what Paul talks about life in the ministry is like. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, Paul says. I am talking like a madman. You understand when I explain it to you. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, the word hardship there means sadness. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is what Paul went through. This is what life is like, or can be like, in the ministry. I mean, that is quite a list. This is kind of the job description for those in ministry. You can go through this. 
and especially related to verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, with often without food, I didn't desire food at all. This is par for the course in ministry. Now, in one of the great Psalms of David, and I think you'd be able to relate to this, relate to this he recites the depths of pain that the heart knows in the sorrows of life. You could probably relate to this verse. He says, my heart is in anguish within me. So there is an inner anguish he is wrestling with. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling have come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. David spent somewhere between 11 to 14 years running from King Saul, if you don't know the story of David. There's a verse that says that David was on one side of the mountain running from Saul. On the other side of the mountain was Saul pursuing David to kill him. Yeah, he was acquainted with grief and with sorrow and sadness. But can you relate to David's pain in verses 4 and 5? Have you ever felt where life is just so discouraging that it feels overwhelming? And verse 6 and 7, I think, make perfect sense. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away, and I would lodge in the wilderness. David records for us in verses 6 and 7 a cry that has come from the lips of all men at one time or another. When they face intense sorrow, they think, if I could only put an end to my pain by flying away from the situation and simply being at rest. Going through what I went through at that time at Bowling Green, I remember sitting in my office and looking out the window and just feeling like I would just like to leave this ministry, go pastor a church out in the middle of nowhere where all I could do is just write some sermons and just be alone and find some comfort, some rest. And anybody who has ever been through that kind of mourning a kind of inner pain and agony, knows what it is to yearn for comfort in a life of pain. <laughs> Here's the paradox of this beatitude, though. Happy are the sad. What? Happy are the sad? I never thought that was true, did you ever think that was true? Comforted are the mourners? That is contrary to everything that we know in this world. Going through that pain showed me how much my character had been formed by the world. So let's take a closer look at this beatitude. Now, you know, the issue here, it's not being sorrowful or being sorry for any circumstance in your life, whether it's loneliness or discouragement, disappointment or lost love, or because somebody died. No, you're sorry, you are mourning because you're a sinner. 
the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, that's the intellectual part. I got it here. I understand my spiritual bankruptcy. But this beatitude, verse 4, that's the emotional part. We feel a heartfelt sorrow for the grief that our sin causes us and it causes others and it causes God. So think of this mourning as a deep inner agony. Now what kind of mourning is this? Well, the word mourning here in this verse, now I want you to hear me on this, there are nine different words for mourning in uh, the Greek. This is the strongest one. So the strongest possible mourning, grief, agony, inner agony that you're feeling, Jesus uses here. It is reserved for the mourning of the dead. I'll never forget, we had a, a, a pastor in a church in Indiana, we had a, a, an older gentleman suddenly pass away from a heart attack, and his wife just could not get her mind wrapped around that and his body was in the church as they were having a viewing and she went up to him and started shaking him and it's like wake up Paul she said wake up she was in such pain she just could not accept the fact that he was no longer there that's the inner type of mourning that agony that pain that is being used here so let's look at a biblical example of this in Psalm 51 a psalm written by David after committing his sin of adultery and murder with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Right there is a picture of what? It's a beggar. He's asking for mercy, right? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in sin and in sin did my mother conceive me. Folks, that is a picture of a person mourning in deep agony over their sin. Verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. That is a picture of somebody seeking comfort. Now, Psalm 32 was written at the same time as Psalm 51 addressing the issue, again, of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Verses 1 and 2, Psalm 32. Listen to this. Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is a picture of a person having received comfort. How do we know? Because what does David say? They are happy. Why are they happy? Because they are blessed. Guess what? It's the same word. And by the way, in Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, 
they shall be comforted. Jesus uses a, an emphatic pronoun, which means this. Blessed are they who continue to mourn, for they alone shall be comforted. So you see, it's only the mourners who know the comfort of God. Now, I want you to notice what life was like when there was no mourning for sin in David's life. And if he sounds happy, that's Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, meaning I didn't confess my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Does he sound happy? No. That is a picture of a person who does not mourn for their sin. Do you see where Jesus is going with this? By the way, that's a picture of every unbeliever in this world. They will never know true happiness. No mourning over sin, no comfort. It's that simple. Now, do you want to know why mourners are happy? Because mourners over sin are the only ones who are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Nobody ever came into the kingdom of God who didn't mourn over their own sinfulness. In fact, it goes further. John says it's a sign that you're a believer. Remember this? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Well, again, the word confessing there, I've been over this before, just as a reminder to you, it's in the present tense, meaning it's continual. Now, in a context, it means this, because John was distinguishing between believers and unbelievers. It means this. If we are the ones continually confessing our sins, we give evidence of being the ones who are being forgiven. Does that make sense? If we're continually confessing our sins, we give evidence that we are continually being forgiven. Therefore, it's a sign that we are indeed a believer because we're the ones who are mourning over sin because we understand that we are poor in spirit. And for those that are poor in spirit, theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See how it all relates? So clearly Jesus sees that the subjects of his kingdom, their life is characterized by a constant confession of sin. Now, why do you say that? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, the verb to mourn, it's also in the present tense. So it's a continual mourning. So you can literally read Matthew 5, verse 4, like this. The ones who are continually mourning are the ones continually being comforted. Do you want comfort? Mourn for your sin. Then you'll be happy. Happy, mourning, comfort. Comfort, mourning, happiness. It's all related. But that's not how I think about happiness. I get happy when I have a vacation coming up. I get happy when I have a new purchase. I get happy when the Browns win, which means I'm never happy. 
But you get the idea here. This is why Martin Luther wrote in his 95 Theses, our entire life, he said, is a continuous act of repentance and contrition. And if it's not, well, there's something for you to pause and consider where you, are, where you stand with God. A child of God is one constantly broken over their sinfulness. Let me say that again. A child of God is one constantly broken over sinfulness. Now, what is the result of mourning? This is really cool. It's comfort. That yearning for comfort in a life of pain, well, it's available to you. I want to briefly give you five sources <clears throat> of comfort that God provides. And they are, again, they are only for the citizens of his kingdom, the subjects of his kingdom, his children, believers. They're only available to you. So take advantage of them. Well, the first source of comfort is none other than God the Father. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father. Again, what does the word blessed mean? Happy is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He is happy to comfort us in our affliction. God the Son is also, believe it or not, a comforter. John 14, 16, I learned this this week. Jesus saying, and I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may be with you forever. Now the Lord, it says what? Jesus said, another comforter. Well, why? Why would we use the phrase another comforter? Who was the first comforter to the disciples? It was Jesus. He was the first comforter. He was the first one called alongside to help. By the way, the word comfort in your Bible may be translated helper. It means the same thing. So the Holy Spirit carries on the work of comfort that Jesus was doing. That's the third source of comfort is the Holy Spirit. In Acts 9.31, carrying on the ministry of Jesus, continued comforting, says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all sources of comfort, but it doesn't stop there. The Word of God is a comfort. Romans 15, 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Have you ever read the Bible and received encouragement or comfort when you're going through a difficult time? It's a source of comfort for you. And of course, the enemy would not want you to read your Bible because he doesn't want you to be comforted, because he doesn't want you to be happy. So it's your choice. Happiness, comfort, read the Word of God. It's all connected. Finally, the body of Christ is a source of comfort. <clears throat> Again, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. 
Happy or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions, watch this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God comforts us so that we in turn may be a comfort to others. When I was going through all that pain and suffering and that inner agony in Bowling Green, I reached out to the pastor of the church and we would meet about twice a month for about three months. We'd go out of lunch and he could see I was just dejected and down and processing everything. But every time I'd meet with him, even though he, 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 Mike was, was not a, a leader, I would come away encouraged and built up. And it would last for a few days or a week, and I would fall back into this you know, life of pain. And then a week later, I'd call him. So every two weeks, we were getting together for lunch, and I just would be encouraged and built up by him. And I needed that to get me through that time because he wasn't leading to end everything, but also just to walk through this. And God knew that, and so he brought me a believer who gave me comfort, strengthened me as I walked through that pain. So there are five, I think they're just incredible resources to comfort us. But it even gets better for us. Know this, that that comfort, it's not just a future comfort. In other words, you don't grind out life, then die, Go into God's presence, enter his kingdom, and then you're comforted. That's not Jesus' point. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our helper. He comes alongside us, that's the word paraclete, what it means, to comfort us in this life. So the comfort runs alongside our mourning. If this is the mourning, here's our comfort. It's there. It's not just the pain. It's the comfort as well. Because he knows in this life, this is what you're going to have. But he's there for you. He will give you comfort. So as long as you continue to mourn, guess what? You'll continue to be comforted. That's how it works. And when we're comforted, we're happy. So as odd as this sounds... Happiness comes to sad people. Not because they're sad, but because their sadness leads to comfort. So I say to you again, remember the words of Jesus Christ. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. If you believe Jesus in his words, that they are truth then you will believe that true happiness comes for those who mourn over their sin because then they receive comfort. Those who are constantly acknowledging their sin and crying out for the grace and mercy from God, they receive comfort. What I mean, by, in essence, what I'm saying is this. Your life will be characterized by massive amounts of confession. If you really understand who you are in your fleshly, sinful nature, you're an absolute, utter offense to God that he can't look at you. And it causes pain. 
in your life into others into him. And so you should be constantly, when you fall short, and you do fall short more than you realize, you're confessing to God. You're bothered by your sin. Then you receive comfort. Now, that message, Matthew 5, 4, again, it too is the opposite of the world's message. Either you're on the side of truth or the side of lies. What does the world say? Well, first of all, the world downplays the seriousness of our sin. It's no big deal. You don't know why it downplays sin? Because it offends our pride. The world says, you are by nature basically good. And I'd say to you that the person who wrote that and believes that never had children. Because I don't have to teach my children to tell the truth, right? No, I do. I don't have to teach them not to lie, though, or how to deceive or exaggerate. That's natural to them. But to tell the truth, so I'm basically good, therefore, I don't need to agonize over my sin. In fact, the world says that right and wrong is determined by you and not by a non-existent God or at the very least an impersonal God. It's not what he wrote down in some ancient text that determines what is right and wrong because there is no absolute truth. So stop feeling bad about yourself. Laugh, have fun. Don't hate yourself. In fact, love self. I mean, could you see any more of a counter-message to God's Word than that? That, folks, is a recipe for an unhappy life because I've been to the land of me. I was never free. I was never happy. But when I gave, emptied myself, I gave myself away, that's when I found happiness. And that's a testimony of millions of people throughout history. So I want to close once again with a quote that I mentioned earlier, but it's actually up here for you to read. Again, the first three words are in Latin. The last three are in German. David, I know you can probably understand this and read this. Translate, this is true. We are all beggars. Do you really believe that to be true? then it will manifest itself in your life by a life of constant confession, repentance, contrition. So, very simple. We've talked about fasting. Do you remember once a year, in the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to fast for a day and mourn for their sin. Spend a day this week fasting and mourning over your sin. Get into this habit. Ask God to break your life, to break your heart over your sin. That would be different. Let's pray. Jesus, your words to us this morning, if we are honest with you, they don't make sense to us. And it just is... Sadly, it shows how we have been formed by 
the world, which another way is saying that we've been formed by our enemy. These words are so counterintuitive. They're countercultural. And yet if we, I believe, really believe this stuff to be true, then we'll live different lives. We won't find our satisfaction what the world offers. We'll find true happiness in you and in what you offer. And I pray that we would be different, that we would implement, apply these things to our lives. Lord, change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great Sunday. God bless you.